Thank you for coming out to see us. In May, I packed myself into the San Francisco 49ers football stadium with 40,000 other middle-aged rockers to watch U2 perform. Bono did a little intro before the music began. Here we are, once again, with the flying cars and the drones, feeling so at home. That's when I knew Silicon Valley's mania for this technology had gone truly mainstream. When techies aren't complaining about President Trump, flying cars often come up. Uber's working on a Sky Taxi project. Google co-founder Larry Page is funding two startups. And a flock of other companies are working on their own version of this technology. Here's the vision. A vehicle that looks like the love child of a helicopter, a drone, and a light airplane will zip people around busy urban areas, unclogging commutes and transforming cities. There will be an app, of course, for your smartphone so you can hail these vehicles. And it will all happen in the next five or ten years. But what many people in Silicon Valley are too young to remember is that flying car euphoria has already gripped the world way back before iPhones, drones and even the internet. I did grow up in a chick farm, like you said, and, 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 and some hummingbirds got trapped in one of my father's sheds. The vision of, of this vertical takeoff capability just struck me and it's never left me. That was inventor Paul Moeller describing how a chance encounter more than 70 years ago began his lifelong dream of making a flying car. It's turned into a nightmare, though, involving hundreds of millions of dollars lost, regulatory investigations, allegations of fraud and bankruptcy. Hi, I'm Aki Ito. And I'm Alistair Barr. And this week on Decrypted, we're telling you the story of Paul Moeller's unwavering, even crazy optimism in the face of daunting technical and financial challenges. There are lessons for today's flying car devotees who are busy proclaiming that this time is different, sounding eerily similar to Paul decades ago. Okay, we had to start by asking what might be a stupid question. Aren't flying cars just helicopters? That is um, not a stupid question. That's Alex Asili, an entrepreneur and partner at one of Europe's top venture capital firms, Atomico. He's backing a German flying car startup called Lilium. He says there's already a 10 to $15 billion market for this technology which is the market for conventional helicopters. There is a difference, though. Helicopters are expensive and noisy with huge rotors that limit where they can land. Flying cars are designed to be smaller and cheaper and combine what backers hope are the best qualities of helicopters and airplanes. Some use electric power, making them potentially quieter. Others use a combo of battery and traditional gas power. And of course, a key feature is the ability to take off and land vertically, while also flying pretty fast to cover longer distances. Some designs look like large drones, while others look more like airplanes with multiple propellers that tilt up and down. The cost of these things um, is going to come significantly down. I think just as a starting point, it will be considerably less expensive than a helicopter. And the vision, of course, is that, you know, these will be a, this will be a form of democratized air transport uh, for kind of short to medium range. 
And to tell the story from the beginning, we need to go back to Paul Moeller's family farm back in the 1940s, long before Alex and most other flying car backers were born. After Paul saw those hummingbirds you heard about earlier, he began building all sorts of things that either flew, moved fast, or hurled people through the air in other ways. For example, at 15, he tried to build a helicopter based on illustrations he saw in a book. I didn't get too far before I realized I had, uh, I didn't have the materials, I didn't have the money, I didn't have the machinery, but I did build part of it. He spent all his time tinkering with tools in his dad's shed, so he was a pretty poor high school student. So he attended trade school in Canada rather than college and emerged as an aircraft mechanic. Then came his big break while taking grad courses at McGill in his spare time. In walks his famous aeronautical engineer. Then he wanted to know a little bit about me, you know, who the hell are you? According to Paul, Dr. Barry Newman wrote the reference that helped him land a job as an acting assistant professor at the University of California in Davis. You couldn't be any lower in the level than that, but I did get tenure within five years, and I, I left the university shortly after I got tenure on a full-time basis, started my company in Davis, and that's the beginning of the story. By 1967, Paul Tess flew his first vehicle with the press watching. It was the shape of a flying saucer with a single pilot sitting in the middle and fan blade engines around the cockpit. What you're hearing here is the sound of an early Moller flying car, the M200X, hovering above a field attached to a crane by a long cable. Then Paul made the New Era 200, the Firefly, the Skycar 200 and 400, and Aerobots, which was an early form of a drone. By the late 80s, the media had fully caught the flying car bug. CBS Evening News announced their imminent arrival to the nation in a 1988 report that was mostly about Paul's exploits. It's one of those American dreams that just won't go away. Behind every garage door, not a car, but a personal flying machine. It's a dream more widely pursued than you might imagine. In 1989, there was another tethered test flight for an updated M200X in front of an even bigger audience. And we had blades fly off on occasion. And we knew that if we went how long, one minute, two minutes, five minutes, the blades were going to fly off. But I, I needed a show of something. I had to show that I could do this. And so I went that flight. It was a two-minute flight. And I thought there was a reason possibly I would die. Just so you know, he didn't die. I'm up there now, go, I fly around, the flight is great. I, I ran into the end of the tether with a big bang and the plane stabilizes beautifully. It's a beautiful picture. If, if you see the thing, I, I'm, I, I comment, you'll see that I'm so excited I can hardly speak just for the fact that I managed to live through this. Smithsonian said we ran a series. We were on Discovery Channel at least four or five times. We were on uh, CNN. I mean, I was sitting one day doing a story for, what's the British magazine like, Bloomberg? Uh, Economist. Economist. I'm doing, uh, doing a story on the phone uh, with The Economist, and Michael Jackson calls up. He wants a flying car. <laughs> and that was probably the peak for Paul's flying car dreams. Despite the early promise of flying car inventor Paul Moller, 
Today, none of his manned aircraft have flown far enough to be commercially viable. We visited him at his new, smaller headquarters near UC Davis in California's hot Central Valley. It felt more like a museum than a tech company. Prototype aircraft were arranged on a carpeted entrance area near Paul's office. He gave us a tour. And so you hit that and then it'll drop down. Don't hang yourself out the side when you do that. (laughs) And then you can, the front one, open and close the duct. These two close the... Okay. So I I press this can. Can you breathe? I can, yeah. This is this is quite comfortable. That's Aki climbing into a red Moller flying car that looks like a fighter jet and being enclosed in the glass dome of the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, I felt like such a badass, like a military pilot. <laughs> Six fan-like engines about two feet in diameter surrounded her. It has two seats, a controller that looks like a joystick in the middle, and a control panel with a tight cluster of about 30 cream-coloured buttons. Can you turn one on? Can we... I, I well, we, we can't all, fly uh, yeah, today. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that the FAA and I. I mean, the FAA is very demanding of where they let you go and what you do and when you can do it. And that's where we're in right now. Is working with the FAA. Much of the stuff you see flying around is totally illegal. With real man flights always out of reach, Paul's inventions generated little revenue, and the project was constantly bleeding cash. Paul says the engines are the really expensive challenge. Engines are like a, like a bottomless pit of money. I've spent, you know, probably in today's dollars, $100 million on the damn engine. You can invent any kind of weird design and get it patented and get people pouring buckets of money in it before they realize it's not thermally efficient, it's not reliable, it's not any number of things. An engine, after all, is key to a person's product. If it's a hybrid car or an airplane, your life's going to depend on it. Whatever it is, it's it's really important. Still, he tried to feed that bottomless pit by making money on all these other related inventions that he sold on the side. Paul's Super Trap mufflers became a hit accessory for bikers and motorcycle racers. He developed a successful real estate project called Davis Research Park. Those two projects made him millions of dollars, which he ploughed back into his real obsession. It still wasn't enough, though, so Paul tried to raise money from investors directly and through the internet. By 2002, shares in the flying car company Moeller International were publicly trading in the U.S. over-the-counter market which is kind of like a second-tier stock market. Things looked great at first. He said he was personally worth $400 million at one point. But in 2003, the SEC sued Paul and his company. The SEC alleged that he was misleading investors by making bold predictions that never came true. For example, they claimed he said the stock would list on the NASDAQ, the top tech market. But it never was. They said Paul projected sales of 10,000 flying cars by 2002. Actually, they didn't sell any. The SEC also said he raised money from unsophisticated, less wealthy people without the right public disclosure. That's also a big no-no. The company ended up settling for $50,000 without admitting that it broke the law. Paul says he can't talk about it, but he can't seem to stop himself. 
if you read the legal document, everything else, we were not convicted or anything, or even suggested in the end, if you read the letter from our attorney and all the other things that appeared on the Internet site, we were never charged with anything, yet we still paid a $50,000 fine to decease, desist, or whatever term they have it, of something we never did. Still, the more we dug into Paul's funding efforts of the last 20 years, the more questions we had. Are you are you a huckster? Are you a are you are you a <laughs> well, huckster like, or are you like, are you an like inventor? Most, like most entrepreneurs, you you operate in a world where optimism is your number one uh, driving criteria. And uh, I am, I must admit, extremely optimistic about how quickly things can happen. So if I'm a huckster, I'm deluding myself. We also quizzed Joe Ben Beavert, founder of one of the hottest new flying car startups, Joby Aviation, and a former student of Paul's. Joe Ben describes Paul as a visionary and an incredible engineer who poured his fortune into flying cars time and time again and then ran afoul of securities laws through passion and lack of financial sophistication rather than malice. But he had a warning too. Yeah, Joe Ben stressed that we shouldn't do a podcast that encourages regular people to invest in Paul's project. He didn't say why, but I got the message and I mentioned it to Paul. Well, that's fair enough. That's a fair comment. I have no problem with him saying that. Paul's flying car business never really recovered. Fast forward to 2017 and shares of his public company, Moeller International, are trading well below one cent down from more than $5 in 2002. Paul has also had a file for personal bankruptcy. One thing that has seen a comeback, the hype over flying cars. This idea of consumer vehicles with vertical takeoff and landing capabilities is just as hot as it was back in 1988. Until 1978, when airlines were just deregulated, the idea of getting on an airplane and Popping across the country, to, you know, to go somewhere was, you know, people dressed up. It was a very special thing. That was Rob Rakich, co-founder of a mobile charter aircraft booking service. So we've already made that leap, right? So it's not, it's not terribly uh, crazy to think that we can continue to make that leap. He spoke to a reporter, Justin Bachman, on the sidelines of a conference Uber organized in April, where Uber unveiled its ambitions to develop electric sky taxis that fly over cities by 2020. And that announcement came less than a year after our boss, Brad Stone, who, as many of you know, co-hosts this podcast, broke the news that Larry Page is backing two flying car startups, Z Aero and Kitty Hawk. We asked Paul about the sudden enthusiasm for flying cars again, because this is someone who's been working on this technology his entire life. And now these much younger engineers are coming in and dominating the headlines. I think it's the best thing in the world. And I, and I know that we're going to join forces at some point with some of them, you know. And maybe we join forces with some of the companies like Uber, Lyft, for example, or other ones. We, we're, I'm willing to work. And I, I'm not one of those guys that say, I want to have control of this company. I like to have some say in the company, but I've never, success for me is having our vehicles in the air and, 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 and getting it, making some, some impact on, uh, on transportation. But then he still went on to criticize almost every single competitor out there. It's the stupidest design. It's never going to work. It's absolutely how not to do things. 
but it shows you can do anything if you want if you don't really understand aeronautics. That's Paul Dissing Lilium, a German flying car startup backed by Alex Asaley, the investor we heard from earlier. Alex says Lilium knows exactly what it's doing. One of Paul's major gripes is noise. He says most designs are still too noisy for cities, even if their electric engines are quiet because they still need propellers. He specifically called out startup Ehang's 184 battery powered aircraft. You see the Ehang, big open propellers, then you're, you're, you're going to have noise. You know, helicopters fly over, you hear that boop, 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 boop. That's not engine, that's blades. Ehang didn't respond to a request for comment. Mark Moore, head of Uber's Sky Taxi Project, chastised us for profiling Paul when there are so many exciting new flying car startups using more modern technology. He called Paul's rotary engines dinosaurs of the past. But Paul argues his hybrid approach is best, using batteries and rotary engines rather than just battery power. Rotary designs are smaller, lighter, and more powerful than traditional internal combustion engines. Paul says battery technology isn't capable of providing both the intense short-term thrust needed to get cars airborne and the steady oomph to make them fly reliably for long distances. We have a very difference of opinion what batteries can do. His vision, if he's heading up Uber, is that batteries are going to do these magic things and they're going to have flying cars tomorrow going every which way. It's not true. Mark Moore said Uber is focusing on gridlock cities where flying cars need no more than a 60-mile range. He predicted that advanced batteries will be able to handle vertical liftoff and those shorter ranges in the next five years. So this future of skipping traffic in sky taxis is still a ways away. The biggest difference between Paul and Mark is their access to money. Mark is backed by Uber, which has raised billions of dollars in recent years, while Paul can barely scrabble together the money needed for a single regulator-approved test flight. Paul even had to sell his large flying car headquarters to raise money to keep his project alive. I've uh, lost, I had two ranch properties. I had my facility in Davis, which was a 35 square foot thousand facility, and I just borrowed so much against it, it was better to just let it go for auction. Uh, to get rid of, you know, off, off my personal debt, get rid of about $5 million of personal debt by letting it be sold. A couple of his flying cars were still at the old location, so we drove over there. This is the site of his former glory. He even built a racquetball court there to stay fit. Today, he has to sign in at the front desk, just like anyone else. It looks a little different in here, doesn't it, Paul? Oh, yeah. Keeps on changing every time I come through. I know. We turned this area into a little uh, kind of dinette kitchen area. Oh, yeah. And your old office is now a baby conference room. <laughs> Mike is one of my original employees. He worked for me for many years. It started in 83. And do you work for Sierra Energy? I do. And he works for us, too, when we're... When we're more, I'm more of a consultant position. Once past security, he led us through the main hangar, which is about the size of a football field and multiple stories high. There, two of his creations gathered dust beside old machinery and newer equipment belonging to the current occupant. Time is running out for Paul, at least by traditional standards of human longevity. 
Paula's 80, but looks a lot younger with light brown hair and a brown beard. Which he had missed the colouring occasionally. <laughs> and he's planning to outlive most of us. There's a whiteboard in his office with a list written in large green letters. Exercise, water, pills, clear, squats, powder and sardines. Well, that's, that's my daily list that I have to make sure that I, that I deal with it. Exercise, water, pills. And when I say pills, they're, you know, as I said, I take probably 60 different pills a day made up of maybe 100 different things that are in it. Still, I had to ask about succession plans. I've had really good people working for me and I know what to look for. So I can build up a team that could do that. And I really want to do that. I particularly want to build up a management team because if something happens to me, the the question is, how is the company process to go forward? And so I clearly have to make, within this year, this this is my year to make this happen. He's pinning his hopes on the rotary engine technology that we mentioned earlier. The engine's going to go. It's going to go big. And, and I've got a contract that theoretically is 30, 45 days away for $250 million to put the engine into mass production. This was in May. And PowerSource Creations, which is the company Paul said was providing these millions of dollars, was not very forthcoming when our reporter Isabel Gottlieb called to ask about its planned investment. A PowerSource executive, Christine Pereira, described it as an agreement rather than an investment. Then she said she wasn't at liberty to give any more information and abruptly hung up. We checked in July and the power source deal hadn't happened yet. The company put out a statement on June 27th saying that unspecified bank cyber attacks had caused delays. The very nature of the investment, it's quite a complex and quite uh, confidential program for reasons that we don't entirely understand, but we're very comfortable But uh, again, I can't say it's going to happen the next 15 days. I could say we're pretty comfortable it's going to happen the next 45 days. But that's the best I could say at the moment. About a week after the power source update, we spotted another bad sign. Paul's original M400 Skycar was offered for sale on eBay for $5 million. The listing described it as a, quote, true museum piece. And it had a major caveat. It said, in this original form, it does not have FAA approval, and a condition of this offer is that it cannot be flown. Where you need the flexibility to land and take off at other than conventional airports, then this is the future. But the road to this future has been long and winding, and one man has kept following it longer than most. I've always had this desire to build this vehicle and make it work and own one. It's taken me a bit longer than I planned. But Moeller will be back in pursuit of one version of the American dream. John Blackstone, CBS News, Davis, California. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. This helps us so much to reach more listeners. And tell us what you thought of today's episode. You can email us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net, or you can reach out to me on Twitter. My handle's Aki Ito7. And I'm Alistair M. Barr. This episode was produced by Pierre Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. 
A special thanks to Isabel Gottlieb, who helped us with the research and reporting for today's show. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye.